Good morning. That stuff about the uh, Desert Fathers was pretty interesting. What's that book of records, world records? Uh, yeah, I guess they hadn't been started yet. The, that pole sitter, he would have been up there a long time. I'm, I think he'd still hold the record. But I'm impressed by humble people. You know, humility is a good thing. In fact, James, in James 4, 6, James said, God opposes the prideful and gives strength to the humble. Gives grace, literally, to the humble. Good things really do come from humility because humility is selfless. So that kind of adds up immediately, doesn't it? I mean, humility promotes others. It promotes good without selfish motives or rewards getting in the way. Humility is generous. Humility is honest. Humility is truthful. Humility goes the distance without expecting applause. It's been said that little people belittle people. Little people belittle people. On the other hand, great people make other people greater. Great people make other people greater. So who are the little people? I mean, I'm not talking about size. Who are the little people that belittle people? Perhaps Billy Graham was speaking about the little people when he said, the smallest package I ever saw was a man wrapped up wholly in himself. That's a little person. Or in other words, we're never smaller than when we're full of ourselves. Who are the great people? You know, the great people who make other people greater. Well, they're humble people. And why are they humble people? Because humble people are preoccupied with things that are bigger than themselves. They're so, you know, they've got their mind on things that are bigger, tasks that are bigger, ideas that are bigger, challenges that are bigger, goals that are bigger, objectives that are bigger, things that are bigger than themselves. In fact, humble people have their eyes on other people because they're bigger than themselves, because they're humble. What's interesting about humility is that it, it often goes unnoticed. I mean, more often than not, people don't notice. They mistake Humility for other things. Because humility doesn't have a publicist. And humility doesn't seek to promote itself. Like I said, it promotes what's more important than itself. And that's a virtue. You know, in other words, it's good. It's something that we all whether we can identify it or recognize it or point to it or give it a name, it's something that 
we just, we like. We like it when, when people are like that. We like it when we see that in others. And when we see that in really great people that look at things beyond themselves. Maybe they're great because they do look at things and they're occupied with things beyond themselves. But as I say, uh, it often goes unrecognized. In fact, in our, in our society of celebrity, humility is practically camouflaged by the things that twinkle and sparkle, the things that catch our eye, the things that are promoted and elevated not humility. But take, for example, Sir Edmund Hillary. I, you all know who Sir Edmund Hillary is, of course. He was in Nepal. That's where the Himalaya is found. He was in Nepal and hiking with a friend. He stopped by the side of the path, sat down to take a rest. He was a bit older now. A young American trekker saw him sitting there with an ice axe, struck up a conversation, and began to school Sir Edmund Hillary in how to hold an ice axe. Hillary just kindly listened to every word, accepted the lesson with grace and thanked the man. And he hiked on down the trail. His friend who was with him reports this. That man who hiked on never knew that he just schooled Sir Edmund Hillary in how to hold an ice axe. The first man to conquer Everest. The first man to stand on the top of the world. And I'm telling you, climbing Everest is not a sandy achievement. It's an icy one. He knew as well as any how to hold an ice axe. What humility. G.K. Chesterton said, It's always the secure who are humble. Sir Edmund Hillary had to be secure in himself to not blurt out, hey, Sonny, <laughs> don't tell me how to hold an ice axe. But he didn't want to shame that man. Can you imagine? I mean, how would... Tiger Woods take advice from me on how to swing a golf club? How would he take it? Or Serena Williams, how would she handle it if uh, during a match I interrupted and I said, Serena, let me give you just a quick tip on your forearm or your footwork. Or, you know, to holler from the sidelines, hey, LeBron! I saw you on TV last night. Man, let me, I got a few tips for you how to, you know, improve your game. I think not. Are you secure? Sure security. Are you secure enough to let someone teach you what you already know? 
Are you secure enough to lose an argument? Are you secure enough to forgive an insult or let go of a grievance? To help that person? To go for something bigger than the argument itself? To achieve something greater than the insult itself? To look beyond the silly lesson being taught, which you already know, to achieve something greater. That's humility. That's having something bigger occupying your heart and your mind than just the insult or the argument or the lesson. Because your pride isn't wounded by those things because you're secure. That's the kind of secureness or security that is the rock of Paul's life. Paul the apostle. Paul is humble. He's not called Sir Paul. He never was knighted for his life of service to others. In fact, I can't think of a single award or trophy that was ever reported given to Paul. We know about Paul largely from letters that he sent to help others. Letters that came in the wake of a life of service at no expense or cost to them. He's so secure in Jesus that he's humble beyond belief. He freely gives up any of his rights and privileges so that others can know the Lord Jesus. And in fact, Paul is like that because Jesus was like that. In fact, when he wrote to the Philippians, this is how he put it. This is how he put it to the Philippians, and they too were a Roman colony like the Corinthians. And this is what he said. I'm just going to read from Philippians chapter 2. starting at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Even when it says he was obedient, it's because there was something bigger than himself occupying his heart, something that moved him, something to which he submitted. And when Paul says this, he says, you have this mind in you, among you, because you have Christ in you and among you. This is the very heartbeat of Jesus Christ. It's the heartbeat of Paul himself. Well, that's the way he wrote and talked about humility to the Philippians. He grounded it. It was anchored in something bigger than him, in Jesus Christ. 
That's what inspired him. That's what motivated him. Jesus Christ. It took just a few verses, only a moment for them to read, just like I read it to you. But he wrote three chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 to the Corinthians. I hope you'll be reading all three chapters over and over. Three chapters, five times as much to try and get across the idea that you're not all that in Jesus Christ. You're even more if you just realize who you are and your security in Jesus Christ. It would be a simple thing for you to set aside your interests, your self-interests, and your rights. In chapter 8, we looked at this last week. I just want to give you a quick review. <laughs> Paul urged the Corinthians in that church to voluntarily surrender their rights and freedoms for the spiritual good of others, of their fellow believers, of people that they knew. But in their society, even though they knew one another and, and they were called in Christ to treat each other like we're all on the same footing, they were not on the same footing in Corinthian society, in Roman society. There were some in the Corinthian church that were of noble birth. They were born right, and that was their advantage and their status. And some were wealthy. Good birth and wealth, they were just naturally on a higher plane in that society. And then on top of it, they knew people and were known by people of importance, people that others in the church could never know or wouldn't know or wouldn't even be recognized or thought of as fully human in that society. Well, these same believers, these elite believers, these A-class people were growing in their faith. They had a ways to go. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we just immediately upon bending our knee in obedience to the, the acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and Savior, if we just became immediate? I mean, I've always wanted that, to really be like Jesus. But it's a slog, and Paul knew that too. And that's, he talked about that in his letters, but that's another sermon. It's a slog, but we can do it in the Holy Spirit. But the point is, is that there were some elite in their church that were invited to elite functions. And those elite functions were celebrated in their temples. They're pagan, what we call pagan temples. They weren't pagan to them. They were just the temples of their gods. And they were prominent events, and they could be seen there. In fact, Paul says in chapter 8, he says, when they see you in the temple eating, eating what? Eating what had been sacrificed to the gods that Christians have left behind to follow Jesus. And some of those who were not elite within the church, who would never be invited to such elite and chief events, when they see that, they think, well, maybe, maybe we're supposed to 
add Jesus to our pantheon of gods, but not give up our old practices because there, there are those, you know, Christians there doing what we used to do when we worshipped those foreign deities. Well, when this was brought to the attention, you know, I mean, after the event, when they're back in the community of believers, someone brought it to their attention, said, you know, it's, it's, it's affecting uh, Bill and Mary. Uh, they're, they're starting to be drawn back into their own practices, thinking that you add Jesus, but you've got to keep up on the other things too. They're, caught, they're stumbling in their faith because of your actions. And the elite Corinthians basically said, well, they need to grow up. We know that there are no gods. We know that there are no idols but one. They need to kind of get with it, you know? I mean, am I supposed to kind of get down to the lowest common denominator and serve, so to speak, their ends, giving up my rights, my privileges, things that are hard won, things that help me with my business, things that help me in society? So Paul's asked to resolve this church issue. By the way, we on a very small but very human scale, these, th- these kinds of issues are, are ones that we face all the time, little, little, in little ways, you know? Whenever you feel the Spirit kind of rumbling in your conscience and uh, in your life, your, your heart, because you know, somebody's insulted you or perhaps wronged you or not recognized who you are or not, you know, given you the freedom of your, of your own rights. I find this in my own home. I find this in my family. I find this at work. I find this in every area of my life. Opportunities to live my life for Christ rather than for myself, for something bigger than myself, and for the ends and aims of what Jesus wants to do in the life of others. So Paul's asked to to resolve this, and he does in chapter 8. And here in chapter 9, he talks to them in the shop talk of elite people. Let me, what I want you to understand, I hope you've read chapter 9, But in the first 12 verses or so, Paul lays out all of his rights as an apostle. He makes a case for his rights, but he's trying to talk shop with the elite in the Corinthian church who are not willing to give up some of their rights to care for and do the right thing for other Christians. So he wants to set forth and talk to them as one who has clout and credentials. And the message is one of great humility. It's out of humility that comes from loving Jesus Christ more than you love yourself. Sometimes we're slow on the uptake, but that's what it really is all about in the Christian walk. And that's Paul's message here. Like I said, he talks shop with the elitists 
who needs someone elite to show them the way. But everything he says in chapters 8, 9, and 10 crosses this finish line in, at the end of chapter 10. And I want you to read it with me if you have your Bible right there. Verse 31 of chapter 10. Here's, here's his finale. This is the crescendo. This is the big finish. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Wait, we're not finished. Because the final line is the very next one in chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Another way of saying it might be love Jesus and you'll get out of the way. I mean, you love Jesus so much, it'll just, it just won't be hard for you to get out of the way so that others can see Jesus in you. That's what Paul is doing. Let me show you what is in this chapter. In verses 1 through 14, Paul sets forth his unclaimed rights and freedoms. He doesn't say that he hasn't claimed them yet. They should know that, and they know some of these things. The first four questions all expect the answer of yes. Am I not free? Yes. Am I not an apostle? Yes. But he goes on to kind of heap up his rights because he's talking to these elitists, you know, those who have lots of rights that they don't want to give up. So he tells them of his rights and freedoms. And in verse 6, he says, apostles have rights. Do, do but not I have rights too, along with Barnabas? And he lists some of those rights. He, how important are these rights? Are these rights fundamental? And then in verses 7 through 10, he talks about the soldier. Every soldier expects to be provided provision for his soldiery. Of course, this is natural. This is not unexpected. These apostles' rights are not odd at all. And then he adds another example. He says the farmer. What farmer is going to sow a crop and work so hard if he didn't expect to enjoy some of the harvest. But then he comes in verses 11 through 14, and he says, in fact, he says, ministers of the gospel, he doesn't say like me, but he's included, he says, ministers of the gospel have been given this right by the Lord himself. That, that's kind of a zinger. See, in his argument, that's kind of a zinger. The Lord himself has given us this right. So it's not wrong for us to use it. But Paul hasn't made his case yet, you see. Remember, Peter was there. Remember at the beginning of the, of the letter, some say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollo. Some say, I follow Peter. Well, some of them had used these very rights, and they were right to do it. It was okay. They had it coming. And the elites 
could say, well, Paul, they followed their, these rights, and we're following our rights. But then Paul says, in effect, listen, this isn't about rule-keeping. This isn't about rights and privileges. This is about people. And it's about making right decisions depending on two things, purpose, to be like Christ, and practice, to be Christ-like to others. And so Paul moves on to the second thing. The primary reason, the personal reason for giving up his rights, he makes this personal. Remember, he's saying, follow my example. And so I want to read verses 15 through 18. Let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own free will, in other words, if it's of necessity, I can't claim or boast, and it has been. And now he says, if I do it of my own free will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, in my proclamation of Jesus Christ, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And so he appeals to them in a most personal way. He says, I've given up rights that others are no fault for accepting among you. I have those rights and privileges, but I've given them up for a personal and very profound reason. I don't want my life to be a tax or a charge on the telling other, of others about Jesus Christ. You know, in our home, uh, when I watch television, I often see these infomercials, and it, I, I, now with smartphones, it's worse than ever because I think Shelley, she, it's almost like she wants to tie me up because I want to grab the phone and, and order that, that thing that has just been advertised in the infomercial. I think, that's just what we need. That's what we're missing here. And then what really hooks me in is that they say this incredible array of things that you need for your home or your life or your gardening or whatever it is you do, this is worth so much money, but for you right now, it's worth only $12.95. And, and if you order right now, hey, I'm already sold. That's what I need. There it is, $12.95, $12.95 I can afford. But then they say, if you order right now, you'll not only get all of this for $12.95, but we'll throw in another one for free. And then there's this little muffled thing that says, 
separate sh charges, sh shipping and handling. Shipping and handling. Shipping and handling that would probably cost, you know, some modest fee. It, they charge you for the free thing through the shipping and handling. And when it comes, it's like, whoa, I never thought shipping and handling cost $50. <laughs> and it's twice that because it's $50 on the $12.95 and it's $50 on the free one. Paul says, in my ministry, in my dealing with people, the gospel is free. Incredibly free. But I don't want my life, my ministry, my representation of Jesus Christ to add shipping and handling that's going to mar their understanding of who Jesus Christ himself is. And so that's what he goes on to talk about in verses 19 through 23. He talks about the primary reason for giving up his apostolic rights. And the primary reason is people. He enumerates them. He says, first of all, in verse 19, I want them to see Jesus. I want to win them to Jesus. I want to show them that Jesus is what it's all about. And then in verse 20, he says, if it's to the Jews, then I submit to that law as if I were under the law. If it's to the Gentiles, he says in verse uh, 21, the Greeks, the Romans, or anybody else who's not under the Jewish law, and they aren't under the law, then he says, I live my life under the law of Jesus Christ, of grace, so that I do not add any shipping and handling charges. And then he picks up verse 22, and it's interesting. Who does he talk about? I mean, he's talked about basically everybody in the world, either under the law or not under the law, and what does he say? The weak. Those who aren't on the A-list, those who aren't invited to the elite events, those who are not of noble birth, those who are not of wealth, those who are not known by the known. He says, and to the weak, to those without status or freedom, I become weak. Don't you think that was meant to say something to those who would not give up their rights when it could help them in Jesus Christ, help them to love Jesus more, help them to see the beauty of what God did in him for all of us. What's the secondary reason that he gives us? This is in verse 23. It is beautiful. It's the joyful fellowship of seeing others and enjoying with those others who come to Christ the fellowship and the blessings of His grace that we have together. Boy, if we've lost sight of the beauty of that, if we've become dry and parched in our Christian walk, if somehow we've become a part of an institutionalization rather than a living, breathing representative of Jesus Christ. It's time for us to get back to our first love. As Paul said in Colossians 2.6, as you received him, 
So live in him. We all get dry. We all get parched. We all get, you know, attracted to things that aren't important. Here is another example of how important Jesus is to our lives and to the significant things in this world. You are a somebody in God's eyes. Each and every one of you, you are somebody. The maker of the stars would rather die for you than live without you. You don't have to work to be a somebody. You are one. And you're secure. You can let go of some of this stuff. You're stinking wealthy in Jesus Christ if you could only know it and realize it. And it would overjoy you. Do you see this guy? You might be sitting there, hey, I see three guys, John. I mean this guy. Do you see that? Do you see that silly smile on his face? I mean, what? I actually watched this race. That's what attracted me. This is in 2012. The man in the middle, the one that is totally depleted. That's Ashton Eaton. This is the 1,500-meter decathlon trial, final trial race to see who would go on to be the decathlon representative at the Olympics, the Summer Olympics of that year. <laughs> and I saw, I saw this picture, only I saw it in moving action, and I thought, what's wrong with that guy? In fact, that is Curtis Beach. Curtis Beach led the whole race. The 1500, by the way, is to the Triple Crown, it's, it's Belmont to the Triple Crown, what this race is to the decathlon tryouts and, and, the, and the series of 10 events to find out who's going to be a champion. It comes at the very end. It's the longest, hardest event. And Curtis Beach was expected to win. In fact, I watched the race. I didn't know that he was expected to win, and he led the whole race. And then as they're getting toward to the end, Ashton Eaton starts gaining ground on him, gaining ground on him, gaining ground on him, and he comes to the finish, and Curtis Beach steps aside and almost comes to a stop and starts rejoicing and lets Ashton Eaton win. And I'm thinking, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. So I get online. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Curtis Beach was the favorite to win. He could have won the 1500. He was expected to win the 1500. But Ashton Eaton had to win the 1500. He not only had to win, he had to break the decathlon world record to, to win the whole final. Curtis Beach didn't have a chance. He went to Ashton Eaton before the race. He said, I want to help you win this. I'll pace you. That's why he's so happy. He was a good second 
And he helped Ashton Eaton break the decathlon world record and go on to the Summer Olympics and become the Olympic gold medalist. And we wouldn't even know about it if Ashton Eaton hadn't told him. He's my hero. <laughs> I look at that and I think, that's a joy nobody else can even understand except an Apostle Paul or you. You really can't understand it. Jesus is Lord and Savior. The night of his death, he and his disciples sat down to a meal. They didn't know it was the last meal, but it was. And without... To, <laughs> I, I, maybe you're like me. I mean, there have been hard times in my life. I, I, I used to pity myself, you know. That's pride. If I were Jesus, I probably would have said, guys, i got to tell you, this, this is my last meal. I mean, I'm going to the cross for you. Do you realize how hard that is? I just want you to really appreciate what I'm doing here. And I mean, like that would help me. Jesus didn't say any of that. He got up from the table quietly. He took a bowl of water. He took a towel. He got down and washed their dirty feet. There's nothing lower. There's nothing more representative of humility. And we, we pick that up because when he gets to Peter, Peter says, no, that's too low. You're not washing my feet. I need to be washing your feet. And then Jesus says something very, very important. He says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no share with me. I don't know how Peter took that, but it means you, you have no inheritance with me. You could take it in a number of ways, but I think Peter got it. He said, don't just stop at my feet, wash all of me because I want to have a share with you. Why did Jesus make that so important? Because he who is Lord and Master reverses roles and serves them. And if they don't get that that is, that is integral, that is, that is substantial to what it means to be his disciple. If the one I follow, if the one to whom I'm a disciple drops his Lord and Master titles, gets down and serves us like a servant, then that means that's what I'm to be all about too if I'm to have a share with him because that's what he's all about. And that's part of what we remember that's part of what we accept when we take the bread and the cup. Not just the glory of him doing that for us, but the glory of us following him in that, that we should be Christ-like in our lives. Will we fail? Yes, thank God for the bread and the cup. Will we get frustrated? 
Yes, thank God for the bread and the cup. Will we fall short, lose our way, become dry and parched at times? Thank God for the bread and the cup. Thank Him. Thank Him. Thank Him. In this bread and this cup is the gospel story. For you, I give my life. For you, I shed my blood that we might enjoy a new covenant, a new world, a new life. Let's pray together. Father, we have nothing to add but our hearts to that. We do love you. And even though we may lose sight of what we're to be all about, we're so grateful that you never leave us. Do a fresh work in our hearts today. Draw us unto you. Thrill us from head to toe with the beauty and the glory of your humility, your love, and your grace as we confess your lordship and that you are master in taking this bread and cup now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.